Welcome back to All Talks of the Second WSC. This week's session is titled Importance of Pathogen Detection and Sepsis Markers and has some very interesting insights. As always, please use the chapter markers if you want to listen to one specific speaker and head over to YouTube should you wish to see the slides of the speakers. Before we get started with this session, a quick word from Radiometer, the exclusive sponsor of this session. Sepsis is often overlooked or recognized too late. That is why Radiometer has joined the fight against sepsis. We want to build awareness around the importance of early diagnosis and to empower healthcare professionals with vital diagnostic tools. Early detection can reduce spending in the management of sepsis patients and will help save lives. If you want to know more about how Radiometer offers the broadest POC diagnostic menu to support the current guidelines for the diagnosis and treatment of sepsis, please visit us at www.radiometer.com. Thanks to Radiometer for sponsoring the Second World Sepsis Congress. Now, let me hand it over to Stephen Opel, chair of this session, to get us underway. Hello, everyone. This is uh, Stephen Opel, and I'm uh, going to be chairing this session, uh, session six, uh, the importance of pathogen detection and sepsis markers. And... Uh, the sponsor for this session is uh, Radiometer, uh, and we appreciate their support and all the sponsors for this uh, World Sepsis Congress. So the first speaker in this session will be Peter Keller from Switzerland, and the topic will be how to, to improve the yield and time to results of blood cultures. Peter. Thank you very much, Stephen, for a kind introduction. Hey, ladies and gentlemen, I would like to talk about the improvement of yield and time to result of blood cultures, which is still standard of care for sepsis patients. Um, my transparency declaration I've received comes from Swiss National Science Foundation, and I had a travel grant from Copan, Italy. Um, my personal background, I'm a clinical microbiologist with training in Zurich and in Jena, Germany. And at the time, I'm working as head of molecular diagnostics and lab automation in Zurich, Switzerland. The big revolution in clinical microbiology is the digital disruption, as in many other jobs. We have cloud-based solution, digital analytics, mobile devices, and a big amount of data to handle every day. In the setting of blood cultures, I would like to tell you about the education uh, of physicians and nurses about pre-analytics, logistics, the state of care, routine diagnostics, and about how to solve the boring microbiologistics, future trends, pitfalls, and the importance of collaboration in the different disciplines. The main um, important points in the yield of blood cultures, according to the studies, are the use of antibiotics prior to blood culture drawing, the volume of blood culture that is used, the frequency of the cultures, the skin preparation techniques, and the type of blood culture system, and last but not least, the logistics to the laboratory. Uh, we did a survey in the past to, to check in the different European countries how well aware the clinicians are about the sepsis guidelines how well the labs are standardized and how the logistics look like. And we find that there are vast differences among the countries and the frequencies of blood cultures is not the same everywhere. 
And during these past efforts of the sepsis campaign, um, the amount of blood cultures could be um, increased. And there are some countries with heavy improvements in the past. Um, and one of the learning points was that the clinicians have to be teached about frequency of collection. The current recommendation, the recommendation would be to take uh, three sets, which is three times two bottles from different body sites per bottle 10 ml of blood, in total 60 ml per episode. And the skin preparation technique, um, there's three studies that showed that chlorhexidine ethanol um, is better than a iodophore disinfectant agent. And of most importance is the fast transfer to the laboratory. One of the other points is the microbiologistics. As pointed out by commenter at the ECMA Congress in, in Madrid this year, it is the rapid management of the black culture bottles. Um, there is wide indications of black cultures, and it is important to do the sampling immediately to triage the importance of the different patients, to delegate the drawing of the blood cultures to the first-line nurses in order to avoid doctor's delay and to do the blood culture drawing prior to IV antibiotics if possible. Antibiotics should not be light due to that. Um, there has been two studies that showed that the um, incubator placed next to the patient will bring an improvement in quality of care and that there should be a loading of the incubator 24 hours 7, and that an immediate reporting of positivity could also improve patient care. And immediate ASD also during night could also be an improvement. And there is automated block culture systems available in most laboratories. The newest generation is able to um, include or put the positive bottles directly out of the machine once they are positive. Then other new devices such as next generation sequencing are um, now into retweeting diagnostics, but there's no improvement of time to result due to that as of now. Um, the last, latest revolution was the introduction of the mass spectrometry devices into the laboratory. Um, by introduction of multi-TOF MS methods, uh, the time to result in species identification could be shortened down from one day to about one to two hours after positivity. Um, the technical principle is just to generate spectra mainly out of the ribosomal proteins of the bacteria and to co collect this data and compare it to databases. This is clinical routine as of today. The next step is to improve and to make ASD, antimicrobial susceptibility, faster. The standard recommended time to resolve is 16 hours for gram-negative bacteria as per UCAS recommendations. Recent studies have shown that it is possible to cut this time down to six hours for gram-negatives to about eight hours for gram-positives and about 12 hours for pseudomonas. And the newest recommendations from UCAST regarding positive blood culture bottles will be on the webpage in a few weeks. Um, our group has published three studies on rapid automated ASD directly out of clinical material and out of screens. Uh, we're currently doing a study on positive blood cultures to 
show that it is also feasible out of positive block conscious. Um, laboratories wishing to do rapid AST will have to use uh, highly evolved camera systems and automated reading devices. This is a burden and is very expensive. Um, there is manual methods that will be published soon and they have shown, uh, the group in Sweden has shown that this is also quite reliable. Um, the blood culture systems and the microscope is another thing that can be improved in the laboratory. Um, by using a microscope, the time to result is about 20 minutes for a gram stain. We can replace the microscope by cytometer with gram staining and reduce that to two minutes. For the AST, there's different commercial systems to read the AST plates, most widely YTIC2 with AST cards, but there is also automated devices for Kirby biodisc diffusion. Another study from Germany has shown that the placement of the spot culture system is very important. If it is right next to the patients, the positivity signal will already change the patient's management. What's the most relevant information for the clinician? The microbiologist would say it's the bacterium's name. The clinician probably would say it's the antibiogram. And currently it takes about 18 to 27 hours from sample to results. And our goal is to improve this time by basically reading the bacteria earlier than um, the current methodology. Um, they can already be read in the exponential growth phase in the ASD media. This allows uh, cut down and the standard of care is still the phenotypic test with the growth observation of the bacteria, not molecular methods. That means we have to use camera systems and likewise it is possible to spare a day to have a faster result within about, I'd say, a day. Um, the observation was that the diameters in Kirby Bauer change to some extent. If you photograph the plates at six hours and 24 hours, there's a small difference, but overall, um, a categorical agreement for susceptible resistance from most bacteria and antibiotic combination is constant. There is some small problems that need to be solved. Most importantly, Mersey, which um, has small diameters uh, at the start and will stay at small diameters versus uh, MSSS susceptible stuff orders will have an increased diameter which shows over time. This is not yet clear on how to solve such minor problems in ASD testing, but there are solutions that are upcoming. Uh, our current standard of care will cut down the time from about 24 hours to 6 hours for ASD by automated reading with the VASPLAB technique. And one of the hurdles that had to be overcome was the non-standardized amount of bacteria on the bottles. This is now um, solved by cytometry. We can standardize the inocular for ASD by slow cytometer, as mentioned, and at the same time, the slow cytometer will also allow you to give out a ground typing of the positive bottles. This slide uh, shows that early reading comes up with about the same results for susceptible resistance for the different antibiotics for gram-negative bacteria. And for the overall conclusion, I could say it is now possible to direct IST from positive blood cultures and to standardize the inoculum. Um, 
my estimate that the introduction of the um, automated cytometers will allow faster ground typing in the future, and the automated system will allow us to report earlier. In the molecular diagnostic, the new trends are isothermal amplification with time to result of about 10 to 15 minutes. Uh, the cost of these methods is still quite high. There is applications for ESPL and carbapenemase or VREs. And the challenges there are that we need clinically evaluated assays, which are not widely available yet. With that, I would like to conclude. My colleague, Alexander Trukola, recently said, in 10 years, clinical microbiology sequencing only. I doubt that. I think phenotypic methods still are very important. And logistics are the other very important thing that needs to be improved to have better patient care. Thank you for your attention. Thanks very much, uh, Peter. That was that was a great review. Are there questions from the uh, audience? If so, please uh, let's hear them. Uh, and let me just start by asking, uh, Peter, is there any um, inroads made by microfluidics in trying to get an early uh, antimicrobial susceptibility testing. I seem to recall uh, some work done in the lab uh, and reported a year or so ago about how you, you could actually use microfluidics to do rapid susceptibility testing. Are you, are you familiar with that at all? Yes, there is, uh, to my knowledge, there's four um, spin-off companies in already the Zurich carrier caring for such. I've been involved in one of the spin-off companies recently. So there will be products on the market in very soon, and we will have tests available to to use very low amounts of bacteria for rapid reading using either microscopy techniques and microfluids or uh, cells. And the other method would be atomic force microscopy uh, to measure the replication of the bacteria already at very low amounts at with very rapid results readout. And so you anticipate that two years from now or five years from now, we, we will have rapid, accurate uh, AST? Uh, I think for the U.S. market, it will take about five years to have FDA-approved products. In the European Union, it might be somewhat fast because the regulatory affairs are less restrictive. But realistically, between three and five years. Excellent. All right. Are there other questions? Uh, if not, I think uh, we'll move on. Thanks, uh, Dr. Kella, for that very nice presentation. And thank you. Um, thank you. Uh, we'll move on to our second uh, uh, presenter, Beverly Hunt from the UK. And the Topic is understanding abnormal coagulation uh, testing and sepsis. So, Dr. Hunt. Thank you very much. It's great to be able to talk to you about one of my favorite subjects, understanding abnormal coagulation tests and sepsis. So, before we start, I want to remind everybody that the coagulation system has evolved to be an effective, effective system of the immune response, and it's meant to function in a way to wall off invading bacteria. 
So at medical school, we all got taught about the extrinsic and the intrinsic and common pathways. And these are very much out of date of our current understanding of what happens with coagulation. So we have something called the cell-based model of coagulation. Uh, and the, the point of this is that we have initiation of coagulation with expression of tissue factor, which is present on subendothelial cement. Uh, and that works through mainly what would be called the extrinsic pathway. Uh, and we get a small amount of thrombin followed by a lot of thrombin generation after uh, the factors sitting on activated platelets. And the new terms are initiation, amplification, and propagation. However, having said that, all of the current tests are based on the old-fashioned understanding of extrinsic and intrinsic pathways. So we know that the prothrombin time is a representation of the extrinsic pathway. We're adding tissue factor to plasma, adding back calcium that's taken out by citrate. And we have a standardized, international normalized ratio for patients on warfarin. And we have the activated partial thromboplastin time that reproduces activation of the intrinsic pathway. It's slower. And then at the bottom, most of us need a fibrinogen level and we measure fibrinogen with a functional assay where we add thrombin to plasma and it converts fibrinogen to fibrin and we compare it with the standard curve. And that's known as the Klaus fibrinogen, that's the functional fibrinogen. Well, one of the problems with sepsis is that we have to differentiate the coagulopathy from all the other things one can see in critical care. And of course, we've got patients with low platelet counts, which I'm going to discuss a little bit more. And then we've got patients who've got a low platelet count, and they also have fragmented cells, red cells. Then we have got patients who've got a normal platelet count, but they have funny coagulation, which might be due to an inhibitor, to factor eight or factor nine or lupus anticoagulant. But finally, we are really interested in this lecture in those patients that have a low platelet count and an abnormal coagulation screen. Before we move on to that, just a quick word about thrombocytopenia in critical care. It is so common. We're expecting a quarter of the patients to have thrombocytopenia. And I think the main thing is to pull out those patients that have uh, problems that need urgent attention. So I'm thinking about heparin-induced thrombocytopenia uh, and thrombotic thrombocytopenic purpura. Uh, as a general rule, we don't need to treat thrombocytopenia if the patient's stable and the platelet count is more than 10,000 times 10 to the ninth. If they're bleeding, we're aiming to keep the platelet count above 50 times 10 to the ninth. So coming back to this issue about DIC and thrombotic microangiopathies, because we know that in DIC, we can have a thrombotic microangiopathy, but there are many other causes of thrombotic microangiopathy. And we've done uh, this algorithm, which was published recently in Critical Care. And the, I think the key discriminating factor of DIC is you have abnormal coagulation. All the other thrombotic microangiopathies don't. 
So abnormal coagulation and we've got a low platelet count of fragmented cells, we are thinking about DIC. So what is DIC? Well, it's an acquired syndrome where we have got widespread fibrin deposition through the microvasculature and if sufficiently severe, can produce organ dysfunction. So in hospitals and critical care settings, sepsis is always the number one cause. But just to remind you that worldwide, there are more cases of DIC due to snake bites than anything else. So back to the pathogenesis, this is the medical student slide that they all get taught. We've got systemic activation of coagulation with widespread fibrin deposition causing microvascular thrombosis and organ failure. And at the same time, we're consuming platelets and coagulation factors. And so we have got a bleeding tendency. We've got a lovely slide here showing the typical fragmented cells that you say, see in microangiopathic hemolytic anemia with uh, a low platelet count that you'd see as well in a maha. And we, on the right, we've got some fibrin deposition in a renal biopsy or from a patient with a DIC. So what's driving all of this? Well, this is from an article uh, reviewing coagulopsis in critical care in the New England Journal that I wrote a few years ago. And what's driving the DIC is the plethora of cytokines produced in sepsis and they can cause upregulation of tissue factor on the monocyte. And the monocyte can bud off some of its membrane so that we get microparticles circulating with tissue factor expressed on them. And we also, at the same time, having this very on function, switching on coagulation, we've got endothelial cell activation occurring, which I'm going to touch on later. So I cannot express the importance of tissue factor in septic DIC enough. We know in a baboon model, if we give anti-tissue factor antibodies, you won't get a DIC. We find high levels of tissue factor antigen in plasma of patients with DIC. And looking at meningococcal sepsis, uh, Osteru did some work showing that the amount of tissue factor on the monocytes was a prognostic factor. Um, we also have data looking at genetic variability of tissue factor, and we know that some polymorphisms are associated with worse outcome. Moving on to fibrinolysis and DIC, we definitely need fibrinolysis to recover. We need to break down all those small clots everywhere. If we can't do that, we won't get organ recovery. And yet the changes of fibrinolysis and DIC are that we have a shutdown due to increased levels of plasminogen activator inhibitor produced by the endothelium. And again, we've got some genetic data uh, showing that in children with meningococcal sepsis, if they have a polymorphism in the PI1 promoter area known as 4G4G, which makes the patients have very high levels of PI1, then they have poor prognosis if they get septic. 
So just one slide to try and summarize the prothrombotic effects of endothelial cell activation. We're getting increased from Willebrand factor. We've got lost cleavage of heparin sulfate from the membrane, loss of thrombomodulin, increased production of plaque, a platelet activating factor, loads of PI1, and the possibility that in some of the endothelium, we might have upregulation of tissue factor. We don't really know. We know in baboons that they get upregulation of tissue factor in the splenic endothelium. So how do we diagnose DIC? Well, it is a clinico-pathological diagnosis. You have to go to the bedside, and you have to think about all the other causes of coagulopathy, which I've listed there and don't have time to go through. The International Society for Thrombosis and Hemostasis have a diagnostic algorithm for DIC. So you give a score to the platelet count and the fibrin degradation products, or D-dimers, the prothrombin time and the fibrinogen, uh, and you can get some idea of whether or not you have a DIC. But let's just stop because we have a really exciting new sepsis-induced coagulopathy scoring system, which has been developed after a study looking at a large cohort of Japanese people who were taking thrombomodulin when they had sepsis. This is much simpler, and it looks at the prothrombin time and the platelet count and the SOFA score. So very simple scoring system. And when we look at some of the data in this paper, we can see that it gives us some idea of mortality by using this score. And in this paper, they do compare it with the ISTH score and suggest that it might be better. But it's still early days for this score. So how are we going to manage those patients with DIC? Well, we are going to treat the underlying disorder. And the coagulopathy actually doesn't need any treatment unless the patients are bleeding or they have thrombosis. And in that setting, we need to keep the fibrinogen greater than 1.5 grams per liter with cryoprecipitate supplementation or fibrinogen concentrate. Give FFP to keep the APTT and PT uh, less than 1.5 ratio and keep the platelets above 50. What we definitely should not give is recombinant 7A because it's so prothrombotic. And we shouldn't give antifibrinolytics because we don't want to switch off fibrinolysis. We need to heal up that patient afterwards. So I now need to touch on the sad story of anticoagulants in DIC. To cut a very long story short, we know that pharmacological doses of antithrombin from clinical trials show no improvement in mortality and increased bleeding. If we look at the use of heparin, very poorly tried because it's got such a high bleed risk. We've got tissue factor pathway inhibitor, another lovely anticoagulant, physiological anticoagulant. Again, the trial showed no in, uh, improvement in mortality and increased in bleeding. And then if we look at the protein C pathway, fascinating effects of the cytokines on it, which I haven't got time for and actually are irrelevant because we know activated protein C uh, supplementation showed no survival benefit. So it's rather gloomy 
the big hope for the future is recombinant human thrombomodulin, actually used in Japan uh, to treat sepsis and licensed there, uh, but needs a few more trials before it gets widespread use. So I have rattled through DIC and uh, explained how uh, DIC uh, occurs and that a scoring system may help. Uh, we need to manage treatment of the underlying disorder. And at the moment, there is no pharmacological agent to improve outcome. They all cause increased bleeding risk with no improvement in mortality. And we're really awaiting more data on recombinant thrombomodulin. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thanks very much, uh, Dr. Hunt. That was a very nice review of a complicated uh, story, which you've helped synthesize in a, in a very uh, nice way. So let me just start by asking, it looks like you don't think we need any particularly fancy in, uh, coagulation studies to do our uh, ICU studies for DIC. In other words, you're not suggesting looking at prothrombin fragment F1.2 or, or thrombin antithrombin complexes or uh, other um, more sophisticated assays, you think those are not necessary? Is that what I'm hearing? So at the moment, there's not enough data on their utility. And um, I know conventional tests are much frowned on, but they are they have a fast turnaround time of an hour. And something like prothrombin fragment 1 plus 2 can take three to four hours to do in the lab. It's an ELISA. So at the moment, there's no data to suggest that they would be any better than basic coagulation tests. Okay. Thank you. Uh, I have a question here to uh, pass on to you. Or is there any data for the use of recombinant thrombomodulin in something like dengue hemorrhagic fever or other uh, Tropical, I'm, uh, I'm not aware of any data in dengue. So uh, almost all the data has come out of Japan and uh, it has been used mainly in sepsis. So it's an interesting question uh, and it's worthy of a trial. Excellent. Um, all right. I think we will move on. Thank you. We will stay on schedule. Thanks, Dr. Hunt, for your very nice presentation. I'm going to move on now to Marin Kola from the United States, who will be giving a presentation on novel approaches to faster detection of antimicrobial resistance. So, Marin, it's all yours. Thank you. Um, again, I'm briefly going to discuss uh, some maybe not so novel, but relatively novel approaches to the detection of antibiotic resistance. I mean, this is an area that in the last 10 years has changed quite dramatically. Most of us are in sort of that period where we're relying on more traditional methods, culture methods with subsequent organism identification. It's a process that can sometimes take more than 24 to 48 hours before we have a complete description of the organism, including, most importantly, the susceptibility of the pathogen to various antimicrobial agents. Now, this is entirely too slow a process given what we're dealing with clinically, especially in the emergency department setting and in the ICU setting, 
where selecting the correct antimicrobial agent for the infection is really a paramount issue in terms of affecting the outcome of these sick patients. This is illustrated in a number of studies. We did a large prospective study back in 1999 that we published just demonstrating that when we looked at patients in the intensive care unit, if they received an initial antibiotic regimen that was not adequate against the organism, meaning it was not active against the bug based on in vitro data, then those patients had a more than twofold higher risk of mortality, all cause and infection. And there have been many other studies to actually replicate this. So getting it right from the beginning is a crucial issue for treating serious infections. Moreover, we also know that there's an important stewardship issue here as well. And if we can avoid the unnecessary use of specific antibiotics and use less uh, broad spectrum agents, that that has benefits from a stewardship standpoint and can be very helpful in terms of minimizing the emergence of subsequent antimicrobial resistance. The technology here is evolving and it continues to evolve. This is just a timeline from a paper by Antonio Torres and colleagues just illustrating for us the pathogens, if you will, below the arrow and the various uh, technologies that have developed above the arrow here up until 2018. Some notable uh, issues include PCR as well as microarrays. And more recently now, we have the advent of whole genome sequencing as well as advanced microscopy methods, which really are opening up a whole door of technologies for us in terms of rapidly identifying the pathogen, as well as establishing what the appropriate therapy for that pathogen should be. When we compare some of these technologies, as shown in this slide by Ivor Douglas, we can see the traditional approach up at top, taking about 60 hours, if you will, for the entire culture and susceptibility data to be available to the clinician with the advent of more rapid methods such as MALDI-TOF, which still relies on culturing the pathogen, but allows for more rapid susceptibility testing, we can see that those timelines can be reduced, and they can be reduced even further in terms of pathogen ID using PCR methods that can not only ID the pathogen, but also resistance mechanisms. And then advanced microscopy methods allow the entire package to occur within a relatively short time period, condensing what we used to do in the microbiology laboratory. So the technologies are there. It's a matter of how they're being used. And in the future, as new technologies evolve, really adapting them into our practice. MALDI-TOF, as you're all familiar with, is essentially a proteomic method. There are a number of commercial platforms that are available to us. And it's something that has changed, particularly in large infectious disease microbiology laboratories, the detection and ID of pathogens and their susceptibility patterns. But it's important to note that all of these technologies used to be need to be used in the proper context. This nice paper recently by Beganovich and colleagues made the point that with MALDI-TOF, if it was added to or incorporated within an antimicrobial stewardship program, one can see that with that intervention, one had more effective antimicrobial therapy, and the time to optimal therapy was reduced significantly, cutting it by approximately a third. And that meant getting the right drugs to the pathogen and the patient, as well as avoiding unnecessary antimicrobial therapies. 
So it's not just about the technology, it's using it properly. There are other examples of that. This is a study by Bork, which really relied on using a varigine nucleic acid test in combination with a stewardship program for patients with gram-negative bacteremia. And again, you can see that the combination of those led to more effective and optimal antibiotic treatment. It really doesn't matter what the technology is. We have newer technologies and, and advancements in the currently available ones. Here we can see both the Curitas and the BioFire systems that will be available. Curitas is already available in the U.S. for essentially identifying pathogens within respiratory secretions along with resistance mechanisms. So this will certainly be helpful to those of us working in the intensive care unit and in the emergency department setting where we often have patients who come in who may not just have typical community-acquired pneumonia, but may be at risk for other types of pneumonia, such as healthcare-associated or even hospital and ventilator-associated pneumonias. When we look at some of the other advancements that have occurred, and this is from Jason Burnham, who's one of the ID attendings here at Washington University that he presented at ID Week, and this manuscript's being reviewed. It just uses, it looks at an advanced microscopy method where one can more rapidly compare to traditional methods for ID and susceptibility, cut that time dramatically. From a traditional approach of about 52 hours down to about 11 hours. So these technologies now are giving us the capability of not only identifying the organism quickly, but actually having a true susceptibility that can be utilized at the bedside. Now, are these making a difference? And I think we are starting to see some data that, yes, these technologies are making a difference, particularly when they're combined with stewardship programs. This is a meta-analysis and CID by Tim Burke and colleagues really looking at outcomes of patients uh, when these molecular rapid diagnostic methods are being applied. And one can see here in this meta-analysis that particularly when they're applied with a stewardship program, that's where we see a favorable outcome in terms of patient outcomes. So again, it emphasizes the point that you cannot use these technologies in isolation. They need to be incorporated into the stewardship practice within the unit. And on the subsequent slide, we can see that, again, it really occurred for both gram-positive and gram-negative organisms. At least at the time of this study, we didn't have enough data with yeast to make that point as well. In a recent review article that Christina Vasquez and I have that's in CID, we just presented this model for the treatment and, uh, well, the empiric treatment versus the rapid diagnostic-directed treatment of Acinetobacter. And the point here is that by having a rapid diagnostic test available, which can not only ID the pathogen, but provide susceptibility data, one can see that one can reduce the mortality in these patients, at least based on this model, and that the relative survival, at least in ventilator-associated pneumonia for Acinetobacter pneumonia, could be increased by more than twofold. And again, that's because now one has the capability of early direction of antibiotic therapy, avoiding inadequate or inappropriate treatments. Simply by just identifying the pathogen rapidly, if you know your susceptibilities, and for example, knowing what the susceptibilities are for acinetobacter, particularly in ICUs where carbapenem resistance is greater than 20%, that can then allow for a more focused treatment of the pathogen 
even without having the complete susceptibility data available. So with that, what I wanted to do was just give a brief overview on some of the advances that have occurred in terms of the molecular methods, the rapid microscopy methods that have evolved, and the important message here is that these technologies should be applied in accordance with a stewardship program to optimize antibiotic therapy, not only from the standpoint of getting more appropriate treatments on board early, but also avoiding unnecessary use of broad-spectrum agents. Thank you. Thanks very much, Marin. Great, uh, great presentation. And uh, open it up for questions from the audience. Let me just start by asking, um, it sounds like the technology is catching up to our clinical needs, but it sounds like they're rather expensive. It, to what degree could these be used in um, uh, middle-income countries or situations where uh, you have a small outfit that that may not be able to afford the um, fancier equipment. Is that something that we can we can hope to have or, or not? Yeah, I, I mean, I would agree with you that the main limitation of these technologies, even including you know the PCR-based methods, are going to be their cost. And I think that you know that's something that we're going to have to struggle with and, and really try to find ways in which these can be incorporated in some of these you know middle-income countries. Um, you know, I, I don't have a simple answer for that, but I, I agree with you. So another question from the audience is, um, uh, various, uh, future point of care diagnostic, uh, requirements are getting to the point where, uh, we'd, we'd like to see and hope to be able to see detection within 15 to 30 minutes so we could write our uh, initial orders from the ER uh, based upon susceptibility testing. Is that still a pipe dream or is that a, that a possibility? I mean, I, I, I don't know that it's a pipe dream. I, I think at the present time, particularly looking at, you know, the Curitas and the biofire systems, I mean, the time has been reduced dramatically. The issue is whether or not uh, one can apply those types of technologies in terms of a point-of-care method, um, I still think that at least as of today, it's most likely that there's going to have to be some type of a centralized area where these technologies are applied. Right. In the future, in the future, that may be able to be changed. But I, I think at the present time, that's not the case. Yeah. Another question has been asked about the coordination between antimicrobial stewardship and rapid diagnostics. So, and you've made a point that you can't just have this technology and then read about it the next day when you make rounds, you need to have an interactive uh, situation where the lab is coordinating with the uh, clinicians. And has that been a problem or how do you work that as far as, uh, getting the information from the laboratory to the uh, clinician so they can use it correctly. Yeah, I mean, I, I can only speak for how we do it, and I think that information systems are vital. Now, if, if one doesn't have a robust information system where as soon as the, infer, you know, the data becomes available in the micro lab, it's put into the computer, 
and the clinician has it real time, either with a flag or, you know, it's just available there on the system. If that isn't available um, and or there are delays in actually carrying it out, I mean, you know, some institutions to try to maybe save costs may try to batch this kind of uh, sampling, which unfortunately takes away from the rapidity with which a clinician can get the data. So right. I, I, I think it makes sense that, you know, if you're going to use any of these technologies, and obviously they're not going to be point of care in the emergency department or in the intensive care unit, you first have to set up the structure for how the data is going to get back to the clinician and how that data is going to change their practice. If you can't do that, then you have to maybe rethink whether or not you should even apply the technology in the first place. Right. Excellent. Okay. Thanks very much. We'll stay on time and appreciate it, um, Aaron. Uh, We're moving on to the next presentation by Evelyn Young from the Netherlands. And the topic will be procalcitonin for infection management in the intensive care unit. Yes. Um, Thank you for the introduction and, of course, the invitation to speak. Um, In the next 10 minutes, we will discuss how PCT can be used in the ICU. Um, So what will I talk about? Um, I will give you an overview of what PCT is. Uh, Specifically, we will ask the question, can it be used as a surveillance or an early warning system for sepsis? Uh, We will also discuss PCT guidance and stopping of antibiotics. And then I will give you my opinion on how it fits into daily critical care practice. Um, So this is a picture of the 116 amino acid sequence of PCT. And as you can see, uh, PCT is a pro-hormone of calcitonin, which you can see in the middle in red. Um, And um, in healthy individuals, PCT is only to be found in C-cells of the thyroid gland and some in the K-cells of the lungs. And in hamsters and baboons who were becoming septic by intra-abdominal E. coli pellets, um, messenger RNA of PCT was found in all organs. So in the case of bacterial infections, the promoter of the PCT gene is responding to translocation of LPS or by cytokine stimulus. Uh, And unlike CRP, PCT is inhibited by interferon gamma, which is released in viral infections. Um, well, then sensitivity and specificity. Uh, this is a study done by Beat Muller, who will uh, also speak later on about antibiotic stewardship and PCT. And in this uh, study, around 100 critical care patients were analyzed daily uh, and were divided into SIRS and sepsis, and all markers were measured. And in this study, for diagnosis of sepsis, PCT showed a sensitivity of 85%. And specificity of 95% and 59%, which was better than the other markers. So, the next question is PCT the best biomarker to detect uh, sepsis? Well, this uh, was a Belgian study. We randomized over 500 patients, critical care patients, two groups, a standard of care and an intervention group. And they encouraged to start antibiotics uh, when PCT was above 0.5 and discouraged antibiotics below 0.5. Well, no difference in antibiotic duration was seen and no difference in mortality. 
Um, however, more than uh, more important, 34% of cases showed a PCT, which was high, but no infection was confirmed at all. Uh, and on the other way around, in 15% of the cases, PCT was low, and the patients had a confirmed infection. So judging on PCT alone, 15% of all patients with infections are missed. Um, well, here is a very important meta-analysis, which was published in 2013. And this is showing the sensitivity and specificity of PCT for diagnosing sepsis. Uh, as you can see, the sensitivity uh, of 0.77 and the specificity of 0.79. So um, the question arises, is PCT a good biomarker to detect sepsis? Uh, well, 0.77 is not enough for critical ICU patients. So PCT is a very good biomarker, and of all biomarkers we have so far, it's, I think, one of the best for now. However, single biomarkers should never withhold a physician to start antibiotics or any kind of therapy in a septic patient. So it's not good enough to detect sepsis in the early stage and also not good enough to rule it out, just like all the other biomarkers we have so far. So let's talk about guidance of antibiotics. Um, a lot of research has been done there. Um, so in terms of evidence thus far, PCT has been studied in observational studies showing on the left side of the graph, and at the right side of the graph, you can see the interventional studies. So a fair amount of data with patients with respiratory tract infections has been done. Then the sub-study, this study was designed to see if a PCD guidance strategy also worked in a country with a already low usage of antibiotics, like the Netherlands. Um, it was a prospective multicenter randomized controlled open-label intervention trial uh, to stop antibiotics on guidance of PCT in a critically ill, and 15 hospitals in the Netherlands participated. Um, eligible, eligible patients had to be at least 18 years of age. Uh, they had to be admitted in the ICU and received their first dose of antibiotics no longer than 24 hours before inclusion to the trial for an assumed or proven infection. Um, patients were uh, excluded in case of expected stay of less than 24 hours. Um, in case of systemic antibiotics as prophylaxis only or solely as part of STD or when prolonged antibiotics was needed. Uh, immunocompromised patients were excluded, also viral infections and microbacterial infections. And the goal of the trial was to establish whether the PCT-guided strategy was superior in terms of antibiotic use and duration and to show non-inferiority regarding mortality. So overall, 1,575 patients were eligible for randomization and randomized uh, by computer-generated lists. Uh, and due to protocol violations, some patients were excluded. Um, finally, 761 patients were included in the PCT group and 785 patients in the control group. And patients were equally randomized in a PCT or control group, and um, PCT, PCT procalcitonin was not measured in the control group, and in the PCT group it was measured daily until ICU discharge. 
So the study protocol advised to stop uh, the prescribed antibiotics if obesity uh, had decreased by 80% or more of its peak value or when it reached a value of 0.5 or lower. Uh, the attending physician was free to decide whether to continue antibiotics treatment in patients who had reached these thresholds. And um, here you see the outcome. Uh, baseline characteristics of the 1,546 patients were similar between the groups, um, and the DDD in PCT group was 7.5 versus 9.3 in the standard of care, and the median duration in the PCT group was five days versus seven in the standard of care. So our primary outcome to shorten antibiotics worked, but of course we wanted it to be safe as well. So we wanted mortality to be equal between both groups, or at least no more difference than our predetermined margin of 8%. Um, but then something happened, which was uh, quite unexpected for us. A difference in mortality was seen in favor of the PCD group. At 28 days after randomization, 20% of uh, 761 patients had died in the PCD uh, group versus 25% uh, in the control group. And also one year after randomization, this difference remained with 35% in the PCT group versus 41% in the control group. And which you can see here as well, the difference in mortality between the groups was seen right away in the first couple of days. So what happens here? Um, it all remains speculative, but maybe it's a timely recognition of an alternative uh, diagnosis. If PCT concentration is high, as expected, then these physicians are reassured about their initial diagnosis. Um, however, if PCT was low, um, it makes severe bacterial infections improbable, and the initial diagnosis may be questioned. So physicians uh, then need to reconsider their diagnosis at an earlier stage, um, and therefore knowledge of PCT concentration might lead to earlier and more adequate diagnosis and treatment, reducing mortality. Um, maybe it's also a more timely adjustment of antibiotics or a lower toxicity of antibiotics, or of course a bias or type 1 error might still play a part. Also just uh, last month, this meta-analysis by WIRTS uh, was published which also showed an earlier discontinuation of antibiotics and difference in mortality. In total, 2,252 patients were randomized in the PCT group um, uh, versus 2,230 in the control group, with 9.3 days of antibiotic for the PCT group versus 10.4 for the control, and a mortality benefit also for the PCT group was seen. So, to conclude, um, how should PCT fit into daily ICU practice? Can I use PCT to start antibiotics in the ICU? No, but I think no single biomarker can. Uh, it is a useful tool, but should fit into the arsenal of retinal antimicrobial stewardship. Um, and biomarkers are not intended to replace your thinking, but to supplement your thinking. Um, so
so rational PCT use can save antibiotic use and money and potentially impact on morbidity, maybe even mortality and antimicrobial uh, resistance. And does it reflect adequacy of antibiotics? I think it does. And can I use it to safely stop antibiotics in ICU patients? Um, of, you can as a supplement to rational thinking. Thank you for the attention. Great. Thanks very much. Fascinating uh, presentation and very well done. Thank you. So we have a number of questions from the uh, listening audience, and I'll just summarize them. First of which is, uh, has the CRP versus PCT uh, battle been settled? And, and is a CRP a reasonable alternative should your laboratory not have a, uh, a PCT? Um. I think um, a lot of research has been done uh, to look at the difference between PCT and CRP. Um, PCT, as shown by Bayard Muller, uh, has a better sensitivity, uh, better specificity. It also discriminates better between viral and bacterial infections, uh, unlike CRP does. And um, um, of course, it is still um, more expensive than CRP is, um, mm -hmm. but um, I, I think it's, for me, it's a better marker than CRP. Okay. The, the, the other question that uh, raised is, um, the, the it's somewhat counterintuitive that you'd actually have a survival ad advantage, but but maybe that would be more evident if there was suggestion of some toxicity for the use of antibiotics, which may very well be the case. And I'm just curious, did in the, the studies that you reported, were there excess instances of C. difficile colitis or uh, adverse drug reactions or some other explanation that would suggest that uh, shortening the duration of antibiotics per se is the advantage by avoiding uh, toxicities of the drug as opposed to some uh, more rapid recovery of the pathogen based upon uh, PCT, which seems seems unlikely. So any thoughts on that? And, and no, there, there were no difference in uh, adverse events. Uh, of course, mm -hmm. we looked at that. And also, we look at um, Clostridium uh, uh, difficile infections, and there was no difference in both groups. Um, so, um, uh, no, I don't have any um, uh, explanation for its toxicity. But your working hypothesis is that uh, early discontinuation uh, in patients who maybe are recovering anyway Mm -hmm. to allow the clinician to feel more comfortable about discontinuing the antibiotics? Do you think that's basically what's happening? Well, it's not only about um, decreasing the duration of antibiotics. It is especially about optimizing antibiotics. Um, and that is um, very important um, because overall there was a, 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 the duration was shorter but in some uh, groups, like intra-abdominal infection, uh, PCT 
um, uh, showed a longer duration of antibiotics. It was six versus seven days. So I think if the PCT is about optimizing, and overall it's shortening of antibiotics. Um, but um, 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 yeah, it's it, it's especially about optimizing. All right, very good. Uh, appreciate it. Uh, there are other questions from the audience. Please submit them if they are. If not. Um, Thank you very much. Uh, excellent presentation. We'll now move on to Dr. Tom Vanderpoel, who apparently is not going to be with us live, but will be with us uh, on a line. And um, uh, please begin. Good day, everybody. My name is Tom van der Poel. I'm from the Amsterdam University Medical Center. And this talk is about transcriptional diagnostics in sepsis. Transcriptomics of blood leukocytes, that is the genome-wide analysis of messenger RNA expression in blood leukocytes, has been used as a potential new tool in the diagnosis of sepsis. In other words, studies have examined whether differences in the host response can assist in addressing specific diagnostic questions in critically ill patients. More specifically, blood messenger RNA profiling has been evaluated as a tool to discriminate between infection and sterile injury in the identification of pathogens causing infections and in the stratification of patients with sepsis. This study is one of the first that compared blood leukocyte mRNA levels in patients with infection and non-infectious acute disease. These investigators used five datasets to reveal a mRNA expression signature comprising 11 genes that could discriminate between infectious and non-infectious acute disease with a fairly high accuracy with a mean AUC of 0.87. This signature was subsequently validated in 15 independent cohorts. At present, there is one host response biomarker test based on blood leukocyte transcriptomics that has been approved by the FDA for use in patients upon admission to the ICU to assist between infection and non-infectious critical illness. This is the septicide lab test uh, marketed by Immune Express, and this slide is derived from their seminal paper in PLOS Medicine in which they published the discovery and also the validation of this test. As you can see, the test is based on four genes on the right side of the slide, uh, two of which are upregulated in sepsis relative to patients with non-infectious critical illness, and two of which are downregulated in patients with sepsis. This test was subsequently validated in a variety of cohorts. Um, and as you can see, the AUC for the discrimination between infection and non-infection was fairly high. That is 0.95. Our own group has put 
efforts in developing the so-called context-specific host response biomarkers in which we compared blood leukocyte transcriptomics in patients that presented with specific symptoms to the intensive care unit. In this study, we studied patients presenting with acute abdominal symptoms. More specifically, we compared patients that underwent acute surgery for abdominal sepsis or as a comparator for major um, sterile um, injury. Uh, that is mainly major uh, surgery for malignancies. We revealed a molecular signature, as can be seen on this slide, that could discriminate between sterile abdominal symptoms and infectious abdominal symptoms with a high accuracy. We compared our signature, the so-called SNP score, with previously published molecular biomarkers and also the, so, the, the golden standard procalcitonin um, for their AUCs and, and their, their accuracy in discriminating between infectious abdominal symptoms and sterile abdominal symptoms. And as can be derived from this slide, the SNP score outperformed other published molecular biomarkers um, in the discrimination between these two conditions. What I've told you thus far is that blood leukocyte transcriptomics can be used for the discrimination between infectious and non-infectious acute diseases. That is the top part of this slide. It turns out that blood leukocyte transcriptomics can also be used for the identification of specific pathogens causing the infection. That is the middle part of this slide. I will present you a few examples. This study evaluated blood leukocyte mRNA profiles for the discrimination between community onset acute respiratory illness and non-infectious disease. They discovered molecular classifiers for acute respiratory illness caused by bacterial infection, viral infection, or a non-infectious cause. And the overall accuracy was high, 87%, and this was better than the golden standard procalcitonin. Subsequently, these classifiers were validated in five additional independent datasets. This study was one of the first to show that you can discriminate between bacterial and viral causes of acute respiratory infections. Our own group compared blood leukocyte mRNA profiles in patients with bacteremia caused by E. coli and patients with candidemia. In the upper part of this slide, you see volcano plots in which the blue dots represent genes that are underexpressed in patients relative to healthy controls and in which the red dots present overexpressed genes in patients relative to healthy controls. In the lower part, you see that the blood leukocyte mRNA response in patients with bacteremia and candidemia is highly common. 
However, there are also genes that are uniquely upregulated or downregulated in patients with bacteremia and in patients with candidemia. Obviously, we could use these differentially expressed genes to develop a biomarker that could assist in the discrimination between bacteremia and candidemia. And this would be an important diagnostic tool because as you all know, it takes a long time to culture candida from blood. And rapid information about the causative pathogen in critically ill patients might assist in the swift initiation of appropriate antimicrobial therapy. We used these differentially expressed genes to develop a three-gene biomarker, which we named the CANLAT score, that could accurately discriminate between bacteremia and candidemia with an area under the curve of 0.95, the upper right hand of this slide. In the lower right panel of this slide, we compared the CANLAT score with other biomarkers, in particular with procalcitonin, PCT in this slide, and clearly the CANLAT score outperformed other biomarkers with respect to the discrimination between candidemia and bacteremia. Thus far, I've told you that blood leukocyte transcriptomics can be used for the discrimination between infection and non-infectious causes of acute illness. I have also illustrated that blood leukocyte mRNA profiles can assist in the identification of pathogens causing infections. In the final part of my talk, I will show you that blood leukocyte transcriptomics can be used to stratify patients in subgroups with specific pathophysiological signatures. And these pathophysiological differences cannot be appreciated from their clinical presentation. Blood leukocyte mRNA levels can be analyzed in different ways. In the examples I provided thus far, blood leukocyte mRNA levels were compared in a so-called supervised way, the upper part of this slide. That is, we directly compared patients with different conditions, that is, patients with infection versus non-infectious acute illness, or patients with infections caused by specific pathogens. And then genes uh, are compared between these two groups, revealing common genes and revealing differentially expressed genes. However, you can also analyze blood leukocyte transcriptomics in an unsupervised way. This is the lower part of this slide. Several groups have done this, including our own group. In this unsupervised analysis, you take patients with a common clinical presentation, for example, patients with sepsis, and then you basically ask the computer can you tell me whether there are subgroups in this population of patients with sepsis that are clinically 
indistinguishable, uh, but that can, this can be classified according to their blood leukocyte uh, transcriptome profiles in so-called endotypes. And this is exactly what we have done in a patient group presenting to the ICU. In a discovery cohort derived from the so-called MARS study, 306 patients with sepsis, we asked the computer to stratify patients based on their blood leukocyte transcriptome. This was done by k-means clustering, and as you can see on this slide, we revealed four different subgroups in this patient group with sepsis that were clinically indistinguishable. We called these four different subgroups endotypes and we named them Mars 1 to Mars 4. These subgroups had prognostic significance. That is, the Mars 1 endotype was associated with a enhanced mortality at day 28. And this was subsequently confirmed and validated in two independent cohorts. We then asked the computer, can you tell me how these differentially expressed genes between Mars 1 and Mars 4 linked to pathophysiology? And you can do this with a software, with several software programs. We used Ingenuity Pathway Analysis to show that the Mars 1 endotype, which was associated with a high mortality, was associated with a reduced expression of genes involved in both innate and adaptive immunity. You can see this in the lower part of this slide. The more favorable Mars 3 endotype was associated with an enhanced expression of genes involved in adaptive immunity. And in this way, we could stratify patients that were clinically not distinguishable into subgroups purely based on their blood leukocyte transcriptome expression. The use of blood leukocyte transcriptomics could be key for the implementation of personalized medicine in sepsis. One could envision that blood leukocyte transcriptomics could assist in identification of patients in which a certain pathophysiological mechanism predominates. For example, the red patients might reflect patients in which the pathophysiological mechanism A predominates, and this pathophysiological aberration could be specifically targeted in those patients. The yellow patients have a predominant biological mechanism B that could be targeted. And on the other hand, the green patients might present patients based on their blood leukocyte transcriptome that carry a low risk um, for mortality. And these patients could be treated with standard of care because the likelihood that you might improve their outcome is low. In conclusion, I've told you that blood leukocyte transcriptomics can be used for the development of RNA host response biomarkers 
that can assist in the discrimination between infectious and non-infectious causes of acute disease. And these biomarks could also assist in the identification of specific pathogens causing infections. Furthermore, blood leukocyte RNA profiles can be used for the stratification of patients in subgroups with prognostic and pathophysiological significance. Needless to say, before implementation of these molecular diagnostic testing clinical practice, rapid point-of-care tests are needed. With this, I would like to end my presentation, but not without specifically thanking Brandon Skikluna, a postdoc in our group, who has done most of the work that I presented. Thank you very much for your attention. Okay, well, Dr. Vanderpol is not here to answer any questions, but I did get some questions from the audience as he was speaking. And one question was, what is the feasibility of having this type of analysis available in real time to do patient care, and which I think is an important question. And I, I, the short answer is, from what, as far as I know, that the, the current systems are still uh, in a discovery phase, but there are attempts to commercialize these into products that could be run uh, um, in, a, in a clinical setting uh, using a smaller, uh, the smallest number of critical uh, transcript uh, transcript uh, features that, that are uh, now under development. So just to give that one. Um, so that's basically where we're at. And unfortunately, Tom um, is not here to answer further questions. So I would like to move on. And before I do, let me just make sure that uh, heard me that uh, Radiometer is the uh, session sponsor for this uh, session, and uh, we appreciate their uh, generosity in supporting the uh, World Sepsis Congress. Now we'll move on to our last speaker in this group, uh, none other than uh, Michael Bauer from uh, Germany, who will uh, give us a talk, we hope, that uh, will tell us that uh, precision medicine will, in fact, change sepsis management. Um, Thank you, ahead, Steve. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you, Steve. I guess I can really uh, follow directly on Tom Vanderpol and the question that you just addressed um, um, upon his call. But uh, let me start with a couple of uh, remarks. Uh, albeit modern intensive care units and therapy of the septic host seem truly sophisticated, we have to be aware that it's poorly supportive, including primarily antibiotics, fluids, vasopressors, and um, here where Tom tried to uh, come up with some concepts that the molecular targeted therapies, there is a question mark. So in the light of the time-critical nature of sepsis, uh, all attempts so far to improve care of the septic host have focused on early bundled care according to the one-size-fits-all uh, concept, essentially. And this is also in part due to the fact not only to the time-critical nature, but also to the um, previous concept that we all had regarding um, sepsis, that is that there is a continuum from uh, uncomplicated infection or localized infection uh, to uh, 
increasing burden um, of uh, inflammation that triggers organ dysfunction and ultimately uh, death. And this is right now about to change with the new sepsis definition um, that you all know, meanwhile, by the acronym sepsis. Three, and uh, this is really changing the paradigm. Uh, the new sepsis de definition holds that life-threatening organ dysfunction is the clinical hallmark of sepsis and that this is caused not by overwhelming but by dysregulated host response to infection as opposed to a regulated host response that characterizes the non-septic response to infection and that includes most of the symptoms that we have in the past referred to as the Sears criteria. So uh, instead of using them to identify a dysregulated host response, they just can be used to identify presence of infection. So let me just take you briefly to the animal lab and to basic research. It's both from the clinical as well as from the basic research point of view, obvious that sepsis is more than inflammation. And this is a mouse uh, that Sebastian Weiss uh, from our group uh, studied in a couple of sophisticated and elegant um, experiments together with Miguel Suarez in Lissabon. And this mouse can't handle iron uh, because it's lacking uh, the ferritin heavy chain. And you can see here a striking uh, discrepancy in the survival. The wild type does much better tolerate sepsis. And this is despite the fact that the inflammatory response as reflected in the cytokines or even the pathogen burden as reflected as colony-forming units of bacteria per organ were identical. So what does this imply. Essentially, we have to realize that there are two uh, pessima to the optimum response. There is not just the hyperinflammation here on the right side with immunopathology that we have all come to know as a typical feature of sears and sepsis, but there is also a dysregulated tolerance process that may also give rise to inappropriate Host response is just addressed also by Tom van der Poel's endotypes, and this is as detrimental and deadly or even more so. And thus, the clinical observation that quality care and bundled care may even have perverse consequences because we treat everybody alike and that we in all other disciplines are hunting for personalization and uh, individualized care that we need beyond bundled care strategies also for precision or personalized care in uh, the field of critical care. And to just give you a sneak preview, here is a paper that very elegantly addressed this concept uh, from the University of Utrecht. And uh, what you see here is the use of dexamethasone, uh, anti-inflammatory drug that can, can decrease the inflammatory response. And you can see here this reflected in a more rapid decrease in CRP, shown in the red line, 
uh, in the verum treated patients and also in a more rapid decrease in the interleukin-6, while the interleukin-10 as the major anti-inflammatory cytokine is unchanged. And the primary endpoint endpoint uh, of uh, um, length of stay in the hospital is not at all really affected. But if you look into the subgroups or the endotypes as reflected by Tom's talk, uh, you can see that you can classify these patients in those that have a low endogenous anti-inflammatory response as reflected in the cortisol plasma level and a high or a low um, inflammatory response as reflected in various cytokines such as interleukin-6, 8, MCP1, or C-reactive protein. And now if you just look at those patients that are displaying a phenotype where the endogenous anti-inflammatory cortisol response is low, but the cytokines are high, those are the patients that even with respect to survival, do respond favorably to the dexamethasone therapy. And um, in the, by the same token, if you look at the pioneering work of Richard Hotchkiss and Didier Payen, um, what uh, is increasingly being recognized is there is also another dysregulated response and this has also been nicely elaborated by Tom just in the previous talk, and that's a state of sepsis-induced immunosuppression. So in those patients, any activities um, to suppress the inflammatory response are not likely to yield any beneficial results. And just to uh, once again refer to Brenton Cicluna and Tom van der Poel's work here, I guess we have ways out of this dilemma and omics, including transcriptomics, is just one option and what is really critical is the selection of biomarkers as companion diagnostics that allow us um, to classify patients not right now on an individualized basis, but at least in groups of patients that behave dissimilar regarding their um, immune response to the infection. And this dysregulated host response may then uh, trigger uh, alternative adjunctive therapeutic options. And uh, we already discussed this issue, how do I get from uh, several thousand transcripts on a heat map to an individualized uh, biomarker concept for endotypes? And this is uh, taken from uh, analysis that we carried out in along the same lines where we just uh, used also biomathematics strategies to decrease the number of transcripts from 5,000 uh, on the whole uh, genome expression level down to seven to really classify patients according to an exaggerated or a inappropriately low immune response and in particular the uh, exaggerated response affects innate immunity while downregulation primarily affects adaptive immunity and for both extreme phenotypes there is a way to intervene, and I guess this is going to be really um, interesting to see how these studies that include these um, therapeutic options will 
yield novel um, insights into pathophysiology and truly novel uh, cause-effect uh, relationships and treatment options. Thus, the current understanding of sepsis really discriminates, um, if you do it in the uh, research environment, already different phenotypes or endotypes, and these techniques to use them in the clinic are increasingly available and can be developed really to a point-of-care concept. And uh, I would like to finish my talk with this uh, statement by Paul Samuelson, economist and Nobel laureate, in a definitely different uh, context. But uh, I guess it's also for us time to quit the concept of hyperinflammation because the facts really change. And when the facts change, we should change our mind. Or what do you think? Thanks, Steve uh, and the audience, and I'm glad to take questions. Thanks very much, Michael. Great, uh, great presentation. So let, let me just start, if I may, and ask uh, to what degree, uh, if one was to measure endotypes, how much is it varying from uh, day to day in a, in the serial samples in the same patient. You know, has that been done and is there much variation from day to day? Yeah, actually, that is a, a brilliant question. Um, and, um, as you are probably well aware, uh, this is, uh, just the start into, uh, clinical utility testing. Um, I guess we all agree that this intervention should happen early on. But there is not very good data regarding longitudinal studies, uh, and this needs also be done, I guess, uh, in the context of also therapeutic interventions. So, will um, the therapies that are currently um, being considered, such as uh, corticosteroids, and we do have data to support that this can be guided by uh, such strategies, but also like uh, interventions into the uh, PD-1 uh, response as provided yeah. by Hotchkiss Group, that then we should not only just look early on at the transcriptomic pattern or at derived biomarkers, but also look how they respond to placebo or verum treatment right. then on a longitudinal uh, run. But I guess nobody would wait for a couple of days um, monitoring this response and then intervene. Although this might be also appropriate in uh, immunosuppression, but uh, I guess this is well beyond any data that are currently available. Understood and really appreciate a very uh, enlightening presentation. At this point, we will uh, stop this session and uh, you will be moving on to uh, session seven. And uh, thank you very much. And thanks to the sponsors and particularly uh, Radiometer for uh, Radiometer for assisting us in this uh, session. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening, and thanks to everybody who contributed to making the Second World Sepsis Congress possible, especially our sponsors, which you can find on the Congress website. The next session will be Session 7, Antimicrobial Therapy and Source Control 2, on Thursday, November 1st. See you then.